and I continued studying, going back to Italy, and that's when it was like, man, I, I really love this. I, I love the geeky dough science behind it, and that was something that resonated so strong that it was, hey, let's make a commitment and figure out how I'm going to be able to spend some more time in Italy. A Chicago native who grew up in the shadow of stuffed pies on the city's northwest side goes on to work for the city's most famous stuffed pizza palace, only to travel through Italy on a life-changing journey. As he learned about the regional differences there, he eventually returns home, opening a branch of the most famous pizza school in the world, hidden away in a Chicago suburb. The story of only the second North American pizza and culinary academy, straight ahead. I need a deep dish sausage and a thin pepperoni for here. This is Pizza City, the podcast dedicated to the art, craft, and passion behind some of the world's greatest pizzas. I'm Steve Dolinsky, author of Pizza City USA and founder of Pizza City USA Tours in Chicago. And welcome to the show, everybody. Great to have you along with us for another edition of Pizza City. We've got a great show for you today. Not the typical pizza maker, pizza owner, pizzaiolo, although our guest today certainly qualifies for all the above. Uh, Leo Spasiri, Chicago boy from the northwest side, grew up literally in the shadow of one of the most famous places, Nancy's, where they started doing stuffed pies in 71. Um, Went on to work at Giordano's, which of course is kind of the iconic uh, butt of many jokes uh, from everybody who lives outside of Chicago. It is the above ground outdoor pool. It is the lasagna in a bread bowl. Um, Has that top layer of dough across the top, topped with even more sauce. Um, but interestingly enough, so Leo did this for a while, and then he went to Italy, and like many pizza makers, had a life-changing experience, and fell in love, of course, uh, I mean, he's an Italian boy himself, but he fell in love with the regionality, and really dug deep, and went super deep, and tried to go back as many times as he could to really understand the differences between pizzas in Rome, and Campania, and uh, Bari and just everything they're doing in the country. And so he comes back and he befriends lots of the heavy hitters, Tony Gemignani and uh, all the old school guys and the people making pizzas all over the country. Gemignani's got a, a, a North American pizza school, sort of the North American branch of this famous pizza school from Italy over in San Francisco. And Leo decides he's going to open up that school in the Midwest. And not only, I mean, he just opened up about a year ago. We did a story on him for ABC7. And I just saw a couple weeks ago uh, Jonathan Porter from Chicago Pizza Tours and um, Scott Wiener himself, the man, came in from New York for the whole week. And they they did a five-day class, which I'm a bit jealous of. I I do want to take that class. Um, So we met today in the school, which is out in the suburbs, a suburb called Lyle, quite a ways, uh, about 45 minutes in traffic from downtown, from the Loop, um, to learn really more about how he got this idea for the school, what they do at the school, more importantly, and, and what people learn there. And like all of our guests, we start off with what was Leo's first pizza memory? Great. 
first pizza memory has got to be as a kid laying in bed with the window open and smelling Nancy's Pizza coming in right across Harlem Avenue. And Nancy's is the birthplace of stuffed pizza in Chicago, right? They got credited. There was a lot of people doing stuffed pizzas, but they, you know, that was always the one that we uh, we heard about. They, I mean, we had made an awesome stuffed pizza. It was one of my favorite, and it was actually one of my first jobs uh, growing up. Was uh, it was at Nancy's uh, sweeping up, taking out garbage. A lot of the older kids in the neighborhood were working there, and for me, it was like literally across the street. I grew up on Harlem and Montrose, and they were on Lawrence and Harlem. So it was not very far from the house. And again, my grandma literally lived across the alley. So, you know, going to spend the night on Friday night at your grandma's house and then, you know, having the window open because, God forbid, they read the, re the air conditioning in the house and uh, just smelling pizzas all night long. And that's got to be my, my ultimate. So as a child then, were your memories thin crust or this new stuffed pizza, which was in 71? So it was a lot of thin crust when we went out for pizza or if a pizza was going to get delivered. But, you know, my grandma made pizzas all the time. My mom made pizzas all the time. But it was more of like, you know, we know grandma style as in, on the East Coast. Like that was pretty typical. You know, my grandma would have like these, you know, you know, janky Wilton pizza or cookie sheets that she would use to stretch dough into. And I remember her making dough in the morning and punching it down two or three times. And, and then there was like, you know, no science or weighing anything, but she would just make these awesome pizzas. And it was really whatever was kind of like in the refrigerator. And I can remember her taking like whole pieces of Caccio Cavallo and hand grating that cheese on top of the pizza. And, you know, the sauce was more like maybe something closer to a marinara sauce with uh, maybe lots of onions and, uh, you know, maybe some black olives, you know, spotting the top of that pizza. And that's really what I grew up on. Where was grandma from originally? Um, my family is 100% from Calabria, Italy, the southern tip of Italy. Because you had Calabrians in the family, was Anduja a part of your pizza experience at all, or was that too advanced for the U.S. back then? No, so I'm going to tell you, like, I'm going to call it out. So back in the day, like, Anduja wasn't a, a, as romantic as we see now, you know. We make uh, salumi still to this day, and a lot of soppressata and capocolo, and my dad still makes his own prosciutto and things. But really, the, the Anduja was all the byproduct, all the scraps that would be left over it was a lot of fat like the the trimmings of the meat and they would just be you know, ground into a paste with lots of pepper obviously to you know make something out of nothing and they would be stuffed into a casing usually it was a capicolo uh, type casing which is a lot larger and uh, I can remember that we used to back in the day use uh, a needle and thread and sew those casings together because again it was everything that was left over so it was uh, it was not as uh, pretty or as romantic as it is today I mean now there's a whole industry industry behind Anduja, but I remember eating Anduja as a kid and it'd be like, all right, you know, this is something else that we're eating. So a Calabrian childhood and working at Nancy's as a kid in a pizza joint kind of sets you up for being in the pizza business. What did you do as you got older? How did you realize, or when did you realize this is going to be your career? You know, I, um, it's a funny story because I never thought I was going to be in pizza for as long as I was because I always wanted to be a butcher. And, you know, if you look at all my tattoos, I've got sausages and pigs and cleavers all over me. But um, it wasn't until like, you know, probably somewhere around maybe the, the, the late 90s that I really took it uh, seriously and said, I'm going to really spend some time and, and, and focus on what makes a pizzeria run, um, what people really like. And people who come and, uh, you know, like my pizza or people tell me, like, I'm going to come specific because I want to have one of your pizzas. It's really about those memories of how I remember growing up, like those those first pizzas at Nancy's, if you will. 
And I remember going into a, you know, the dough room when we first opened the school here and said, I'm going to, I'm going to really try to recreate that pizza as I remember it, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And, um, there was no measurements. I remember using a, a, a coffee cup from the dining room back in the day to measure the salt and, uh, you know, a nice big handful of lard would go into the machine. You know, it wasn't weighed. We were using tomato cans to measure our water and, you know, full bags of flour, obviously. So we didn't have to weigh the flour, but all of a sudden, you know, you threw everything into the whole Bart and, you know, eight, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, whatever was it timing it, you'd have a dough that came up, came out, but it was something that, you know, was, it worked. What was your first sort of professional pizza experience? I know you worked at Giordano's for a while. Yeah. So I was the executive chef or corporate chef, whatever you want to call it. They only had, it was, I was the only guy. And, uh, there was, uh, you know, I was working for the original family back then that, uh, really took that, that brand and, uh, and made it into the empire that it became. By the way, you know, Giordano's started by two former Nancy's employees who are Argentinian right. yeah. and they opened a place in the South side and they kind of in 74 claimed to be the the birthplace of stuffed actually it was Nancy's but anyway um, so you're working at Giordano's when how old are you so uh, at that point I was in my uh, maybe mid-20s late 20s making a lot of stuffed pies yeah that was uh, one of those things that you know I have a lot of friends and family that come in from Italy and uh, that was around the same time that I started um, getting trained in Italy so the people would be coming from Italy and seeing this stuffed pizza for the first time. Which, by the way, for people who don't know, it's based on the Easter pie in, in Italy, the pizza rustica. And it's, uh, it's in Chicago, you, you have a base layer of dough, toppings, some cheese, and then another layer, a thinner layer of dough on top, and then covered by sauce, yes? Yes, exactly. And we would we would crimp the edges just like a pie. And um, the, the fillings um, back in that, the rustica that you had mentioned, you know, there was a lot of like eggs and onions and olives and things that were used. So to see the transition of all of a sudden the eggs being replaced with all of this mozzarella, and that's always the first impression. And I know a lot of friends from New York would be like, man, I'm just getting agita looking at this thing. But it was, a, it was really something that we grew up on. And you know, the amazing thing is you know, everybody loves to see that cheese pull you know, as soon as you grab the first slice out. But it's a, it is part of our fabric, fabric in Chicago. But that was, uh, that was really that time when um, you know, seeing pizza in a new light. You know, I had all this Chicago experience, and then starting to see what I was seeing in Italy and how that translated back, I think that I made a lot better um, stuffed pizzas after that because I was able to kind of tinker with the dough and, you know, trying different flours. It was obviously something we were doing at Giordano's, but in my personal life, I was, you know, in the background, you know, trying to say, how can we make this pizza lighter? How can we make it more flavorful? And those are some of the things that I remember doing really young. And how do you go from a sort of a Chicago punchline, an iconic punchline, if you will, to training in Italy and really expanding your, your pizza knowledge? So it wasn't until um, uh, I got a call from actually Tony Gimignani, and uh, he had just opened uh, his school in California, the International School of Pizza. And uh, he hadn't even landed on a location yet at that time. I remember we were working in a, uh, uh, an oven factory, a, a manufacturer or an importer of uh, equipment, and we were working in their test kitchen. And it wasn't until that point he says, you know, come to Chicago, uh, come to San Francisco. I know what you're doing in Chicago. And he really introduced me into that world of Italian pizza. And that was the first time that I met Graziano Bertuzzo, 
who's the guy that trained Tony and, uh, and myself. And I continued studying, going back to Italy. And that's when it was like, man, I, I really love this. I, I love the geeky dough science behind it. And that was something that resonated so strong that it was, hey, let's make a commitment and figure out how I'm going to be able to spend some more time in Italy. And then being able to go through all these different parts of the country in Italy and specifically see what a Roman style pizza looks like. You know, going to Campo di Fiore and actually having a pizza alla pala that's not, you know, uh, one meter, it's two meters long. And, you know, seeing that for the first time, you know, makes an impression on you. But getting all these different experiences and then being able to come back to Chicago and open in my own school, this is why for me, I feel like I have a responsibility in keeping everything as traditional to the way they're doing it in Italy. And Tony and I, while we have two of the two schools, we really took two different paths as far as how we, we approach teaching students. Tony's approach is taking the evolution of how the pizza arrived in the United States and teaching those Italian styles along with the different American styles. So a New York class, a Detroit class, a Chicago class, where my classes focus on specifically the five styles in the way that I learned them and trying to bring in products, ingredients, whatever we have to do to make that experience exactly like I learned it when I was in Italy. And the only difference is really that we're doing it in English here. And so this is now called the, the North American Pizza and Culinary Academy? Exactly. So we're always Scuola Italiana Pizzaioli Chicago. Um, and that's a huge honor for us because, you know, there's less than 20 schools worldwide. And to say that we're a group of less than 100 master instructors in the world, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty special thing. But when we decided that we were going to make our brand... Um, we loved the North American Pizza and Culinary Academy. While it's a very long name, and it was a nightmare trying to get an email address and a website, um, but when we decided to actually put this together, um, we really wanted to focus on gastronomy, if you will. So the pizza was a big piece of this, but to be able to offer cooking classes with instructors that were actually specialized in those styles of cooking. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking with Leo Spasiri about his school. Uh, we're going to take a little tour here. You'll tell me kind of what a typical student would go through some of the phases. Um, we're also going to preview some scenes from our next show coming up in two weeks. So stay with us. How crazy is it to think you can actually have your insurance company pay you to walk? United Healthcare isn't crazy. They just want you to be healthy. One of their programs is called United Healthcare Motion, where members can earn more than a thousand bucks a year toward their health reimbursement account just for walking. If your company works with United Healthcare, ask your friendly HR person about their programs. And if not, go tell them to switch today. Go to uhc.com/illinoismotion to get more information. United Healthcare, a proud supporter of the Illinois Restaurant Association and committed to your good health. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We're talking with Leo Spaziri this week. He's the founder of the North American Pizza and Culinary Academy here in Chicago, I guess, the second school, the Scuola Italia Pizzaioli. I pronounced that right. Yeah, Scuola Italiana Pizzaioli. Okay, so you've got uh, the two in North America. Well, you said one's in San Francisco that Tony Gemignani started. You've got this one outside of Chicago. We're technically about 20 miles west of the city of Chicago, west of downtown in a suburb called Lyle. Uh, very glorious uh, sort of industrial park here near the high school. Is it one type of student that comes here for five days, or do you have like part-timers that want to just 
have fun? Like, what's the typical student situation? We actually, see, it's, a, it's really broad. We offer one, three, and five-day classes. It's a, the one-day class is a nice immersion. We have a lot of, uh, let's say, home bakers who have maybe a wood-fired oven in their backyard and really want that first professional experience. So they'll come here for eight hours, and we'll teach them about mixing dough, um, teaching them about the different kinds of flour and you know, strengths of flour. They experience all the way to properly stretching and baking dough. Um, as you're about to see, we've got a lot of different ovens, seven different types of ovens. Um, so to be able to say you're going to get an experience on a wood fire or electric or a gas oven, that's really one of the special things about coming here. But then all of a sudden you have people who are maybe a little bit more professional or that home baker that wants to go a little bit farther down a rabbit hole will come in and take a three-day class. The three days is really nice because that's when we start to get into starters and um, being able to see a dough at multiple different days of uh, maturation, uh, still focusing on the practical side where we're stretching dough and, and baking, but the theory portion, the dough chemistry and functionality of ingredient side is really where people are saying, I'm going to take a three-day because of that. And then when you get to the five-day, the five-day is like the, 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 the peak because the five day is where you're officially going to get certified as a pizzaiolo and all of your paperwork ends up in, in Italy at Scuola Italiana Pizzaioli and you actually get registered in Italy. So to be able to say that you're going to take five days out of your life, for some people that's a, that's a big investment. But in those five days where we call out it's a 40, day, a 40 hour course, we see people, still, you know, students will show up early in the morning, late at night, and nobody wants to leave. So that 40-hour course a lot of times goes to 50, 60 hours by the time we're all done. But then on the last day, we take an exam. They take an exam, and that's once they pass, get their official certification. So in the classroom, we spend at least 20 hours of that course on the theory side, talking about, when we talk about functionality of ingredients, talking about the, you know, what makes yeast work and you know how it affects the dough itself. And then all the different types of flours and strengths of flours. The Italian method is focused more on the gluten than the protein of the flour. So this is a very different way of thinking. We don't even deal with much in baker's percentages while we're here because in the Italian methods, all of our formulas that we create are baked based on a liter of water. So it's, it's a totally almost rewiring that I'm doing of what people traditionally see every day on the internet. And then they come in here and I blow their heads off on the first day. <laughs> and then by day two, they're, you know, they're scratching their head. What am I doing here? But they kind of start connecting the dots. And by the time we're done, it's just an awesome experience for everybody. Right, let's take a little walk here. Um, we're going to walk outside into the main room. And this main room is like your kind of showroom where you do your cooking classes and demonstrations. And you got this beautiful show kitchen uh, with a giant hood and these large sort of communal butcher block tables. And then, of course, there's some product here to buy. Oh, there's a beer on tap, it looks like. A couple of ovens if you want to buy one. Um, and then we walk back here. When we, uh, when we teach, we go from uh, the theory portion and directly into practical. And the first thing we do is start mixing dough every day. So if we want to go around, we'll go into the, uh, the dough room. We'll talk about that. The dough room is pretty special because, you know, we did build this as a, as a walk-in cooler. Insulated walls because we're trying to create almost like a bubble. The, uh, the room itself has its own mechanical system on the roof, so uh, climate and humidity controlled. Um, so if I'm making, uh, the best thing I can say is if we're making a, a Neapolitan course, 
students will actually work on that dough and that dough never gets refrigerated. So we'll set the, the conditions of this room up just like Naples, Italy. That dough will sit in this room for six, eight hours and then we'll take it into the oven room and bake it in an actual Neapolitan wood-fired oven. I'm looking at uh, four or five different mixers here. And we're gonna have pictures, by the way, on our Instagram, which is Pizza City USA, if you wanna see more. Um, obviously, this giant Hobart I've seen everywhere, but you got some other ones here from Italy, including this one back in the corner that kind of mimics the motion of arms. The name for it is a braccio tufante, or uh, we would call it a diving arm mixer here uh, in the States. But again, it's important because each one of these different styles of mixer incorporates its own amount of heat into the dough. So when we talk about reducing friction, what are we talking about? Controlling our final dough temperature. And especially when you have doughs today, like a, a Roman dough could go 96 hours before it's baked. That, that final dough temperature is very critical because we need to have enough sugars left inside of that dough to caramelize to get that nice golden color out of the oven. I remember Dan Richer, who owns Raza in Jersey City, was telling me he calculates the temperature that is generated by the mixer when he's making the dough. That's right. We call that the, fix, the friction factor of the machine. I think the friction factor could be the name of a maybe a new reality show about uh, pizzerias. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So let's uh, walk back out to, to the, the oven room now. So you've let's say you've made some dough and you're talking about fermentation and um, you're going to try things out. You're going to do, I'm guessing you do cold and ambient uh, resting time for fermentation? Yeah, so depending on what we're doing, like for example, the Neapolitan dough. Again, that's a dough that's never refrigerated. So how do we control that dough? We're watching specifically what the temperature is. So in Naples, you know, you'd be talking about maybe one to three grams of yeast, which is very little yeast for every liter of water. And, you know, how do they uh, fluctuate that? Well, it's all by the temperature of the day. If it's a hotter day, they're going to use less yeast, where you really don't need a lot yeast because the Neapolitan oven is so hot that it's really that dough is raising because of water turning into steam and not so much the yeast opening the structure up you know we're standing now in what would be I guess the equivalent of like a, a showroom for a car dealership you don't want to test drive everything here it's all beautiful and shiny you've got more than half a dozen ovens here anything that um, is worth pointing out I mean there's obviously deck ovens and there's gas fired and so when we, we built this, um, again, we have a, a, a rotary deck oven. Um, the Marana oven is a, uh, the entire floor will spin on this oven. And then it'll, it has this like little Nintendo joystick that will lift the entire floor up. So every level that you raise the floor, it'll raise the temperature 100 degrees because you're bringing the pizza closer to the dome. Same thing with the Neapolitan oven. You know, this is an oven that was, you know, made to work like a Ferrari. It would go really fast, really hot. And speaking of Ferrari, that's actually how we laid this room out we uh, we have a, a local ferrari dealership that you pass by at night and every car has a spotlight on it and when we hear at the school you know we have classes going at night the oven room is literally lit with a spotlight on each oven it's really amazing what you can do and how deep this rabbit hole has become because like you say five years ago people weren't talking about a lot of this stuff and now people really geek out about everything time temperature humidity fermentation time where you're sourcing every ingredient from and i'm guessing and for the last question is sort of how do you talk about like sauces versus cheeses versus other ingredients? You know, for me, it, it's really important to teach my, uh, to be really neutral and to teach my students um, exactly what each style needs. For example, everybody loves to talk about San Marzano tomatoes when they talk about sauce. Here at the school, we only use San Marzano tomatoes when we're doing a Neapolitan pizza. The rest of the Italian or pizza classica pizzas that we would make, we're using a tomato from Parma because it's a different variety. 
It's a sweeter tomato. It doesn't have the acidity that the San Marzano has. So I think that our focus here is selecting the right ingredient for the style of pizza that we're creating. So even when we get into the talk of uh, mozzarella, you know, in the American styles, you hear a lot about, you know, shredded mozzarella and block and the age of blocks and that sort of thing happening. But when you go to Italy, it's all about fresh mozzarella and even the, the fresh loaves of mozzarella that are being shredded and turned into ribbons. Um, those types are, are, are managed differently than we do here in the States. Uh, you go down to Campania and you get buffalo milk mozzarella. You know, there's different cities in Campania. You go to Caserta and they won't eat uh, buffalo milk mozzarella after 24 hours of being produced because it changes in that acidity. And you people at home listening to this, do you think pizza is easy? And simple, man, it is science, it is math, it is history, geography, climate. I mean, there are so many different factors uh, when, when it comes to making great pizza. How do people get more information if they want to learn more about your school? We'd love to have everybody here. The, the best way to get a hold of us is on our website. Uh, we have all of our classes listed at pizzaculinaryacademy.com. Um, you can also find us on social media at, at Pizza Culinary Academy, and then me personally at, at Ask Leo Pizza. And we'd love to be able to answer all those questions anybody has and have everybody here in class. For sure, ask Leo anything because he knows everything about pizza. Leo Spaziri, thank you so much again. Grazie, and uh, really good luck with the school here. Thank you very much. It was an honor to have you here with us today, Steve. All right, coming up in two weeks, a trip to Las Vegas, where the pizza scene is booming, thanks in part to a Brooklyn native who is specializing in a style rarely seen outside of New York. The grandma pizza, if you're going to describe it, it's, it's a thinner square. It's thinner than a Sicilian. It's crispy. It's lighter. Um, for me, the grandma has is airier, but then there's a cracker-thin almost version of it um, at some places, and some places go thicker where people are saying that's too thick to be a grandma. All grandmothers made it a little bit differently, and, and it rose different. In the world of grandmas, there's like a lot of different interpretations. I'll talk with Vincent Rotolo, owner of Good Pie, about his remarkable grandma slices served just north of the Strip and soon in the nearby Arts District. That's in two weeks on December 20th. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. We're at Pizza City USA on Instagram. And for more info about the book and our weekly tours, visit us at pizzacityusa.com. I'm on all social media, by the way, at Steve Delinsky. Bureaucratic wrote and performed our theme song, and next time you're in Chicago, check out Revival Food Hall in The Loop, where Dante's Pizza currently baking its New York-style slices through the end of the month. That's not too much longer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great holiday, and here's wishing you an optimal bite ratio, always. <laughs>